You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mrs. Ferrers died on the night of the 16th to 17th of September, a Thursday. I was sent for at 8 o'clock on the morning of Friday the 17th. There was nothing to be done. She had been dead some hours. It was just a few minutes after 9 when I reached home once more. I opened the front door with my latch key and purposely delayed a few moments in the hall, hanging up my hat and the light overcoat that I had deemed a wise precaution against the chill of an early autumn morning. So specific. I love it already. (laughs) Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book out into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. Hello, my name is Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and a maker of immersive fiction. Uh, My name is Lloyd Shepard. I'm a writer and a digital producer. And this episode... We have gone to the motherload of detective fiction, I'd say. Well, we're doing. We're going to do three books by uh, grand dames of high English detective fiction. Lovely. And we're starting with the biggest of them all. Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie. I don't know, maybe her most famous book or one of her three or four most famous books. Classic. The Death of Roger Ackroyd. That's right. Is it the death? Is it the, of the death or the murder? <laughs> Should we get the right, title mate? right? Should we get the title right, mate. You're going to have to look it up, aren't you? It's the murder of Roger yeah, Ackroyd. I, so. I, 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 I let you, you go there, but I thought, okay. Uh, now, health warning, listener. These are detective novels. They are. There are um, mysteries in them that need to be solved. A murderer needs to be unmasked. Now, in discussing this book, I'm afraid there are going to be certain points where we're going to give something away. Yeah, we'll give we'll give special warnings. I think when a particular section is going to be particularly plot spoilery, but a general health warning would be if you haven't read this book, 
and you intend to read this book, you probably want to stop listening now and go and read the book. Yes. It'll take you about three or four hours. Is it's that six, right? 65, 70,000 words. <laughs> it's very, it's very, very, it rattles along. It does, yeah. actually. You can get it read in an afternoon. And it has a superb twist at the end. Just a, one of the great twists. Or does it? <laughs> more <laughs> of that. To be discussed. More of that anon. But the, the, the chief thing about this book is it's based in a village called, a fictional village called King's Abbot. Yes, and I don't think anyone has ever explicitly tried to say where that village where is. Where is King's Abbot? And then we came along, mm. uh, and we've got a proposal for where it is. And we're going to go to a bunch of locations in a place that's very near Manchester. There's a town called Cranchester in the book. Yes. She mentions Liverpool without changing the name, but she also mentions Cranchester. Mm-hmm. We're going to a town called Cheadle. Before I proceed further with what I said to Caroline and what Caroline said to me, it might be as well to give some idea of what I should describe as our local geography. Our village, King's Abbot, is, I imagine, very much like any other village. Our big town is Cranchester, nine miles away. We have a large railway station, a small post office and two rival general stores. Able-bodied men are apt to leave the place early in life, but we are rich in unmarried ladies and retired military officers. Our hobbies and recreations can be summed up in one word, gossip. (laughs) So, uh, I think Dr Shepherd is a man after our own heart. He likes to establish the local geography. So we are going to establish the local geography for so you this now, is, listener. So this is uh, Shepherd on Shepherd. Shepherd on Shepherd. So we are sitting out Cheadle Green. Cheadle Green. Cheadle, a, a decent-sized town these days, in the very, very top edge of the county of Cheshire, nine miles from God's country, <laughs> the greatest city on the planet, the one, the only, Manchester, a.k.a. Cranchester. Cranchester, yes, hiding yeah. in plain sight there. It's interesting that she, she she does that to Manchester, but she doesn't bother doing that to Liverpool. She doesn't bother giving Liverpool another name. Because why no. would you bother? And I'm looking. I'm sitting on a bench. I'm looking down Cheadle High Street across Cheadle Green. In 1926, when this book is set, more of which are non, I wouldn't have been able to do that from where I'm sitting because there would have been a great big house here. Yes, called Cheadle Hall. Yes, and they rather nicely put the outline of the hall it's very into the grass. We've been reading here. the notice boards by the Cheadle Civic Society, and they are first class, I would say. Very good, aren't Chapeau they? Chapeau to the Cheadle Civic Society. Very good. So I would have been able to see, if the house hadn't been here, to my left, a police station. Uh, to my right, the road up to Abney Hall, Yep, uh, which we will be talking about shortly. Down the high street, I probably would have been able to see a post office and a couple of general stores. There would have been a closed railway station away to my right. And uh, the point about this place is, the reason why it's significant, is that Agatha Christie's sister uh, was the lady of the manor uh, of Cheadle because she lived in Apney Hall, which is the big hall on the estate owned by the Watts family, yeah. who also owned Cheadle Hall. They did. And uh, Agatha used to come here, Agatha Christie used to come here as a child from about the sort of mid-noughties, of the, of the 20th century yeah. all the way through to when this book came out 1926 yeah and beyond She's, so she it is going to be time. our contention is it not that King's Acre King's Abbot King's Abbot I keep getting it wrong King's yeah. Abbot equals Cheadle, Cheadle. Well, I think and we're not sure anyone's ever said that before 
I can't find anybody who's out and out had a go at saying that. So yeah. what you're listening to, listener, is groundbreaking, <laughs> epochal well, it's, it's literary an, criticism. It's, a, it's another reason why uh, this podcast is such fun, is that if you actually go out to these places you, with a book, you kind of start to make associations, which are really quite powerful. More than fun, Tim. Culturally significant. Well, I I, if you're a writer sitting here and you've got, you've got this on your doorstep now, haven't you? You've, I can imagine Agatha sitting here and going, well, if the doctor lives over there... Yeah. Which bit? And if the pub is there, and if the police station's there, yeah. and if the house is there, this is this is the time frame that I've got to work within. You can see her doing it, can't you? All I needed was a steady table and a typewriter, a marble top bathroom table, made a very good place to write. The dining room table in between meals was also helpful. My family usually noticed signs of approaching activity by saying, "Look." Mummy's broody again. So, Agatha Christie. I feel a bit, it's a bit weird talking about Agatha Christie and doing a sort of a, a, a little biog of her because she's so famous. Yeah, I think anybody listening to this probably knows about her and has read some of the books. Well, I, I think so. I mean, she's the biggest selling author of all time, yeah. by all accounts. One of the things about her is she's so well known, I think people think they know about her. Oh, but, arguably, but you have a special insight, do you? Well, no. Uh, Lucy Worsley has uh, has written a, a biography called The Elusive Woman, and, mm. and actually a very good BBC documentary version of it, three parts, it's still on the iPlayer. It's very good. And she makes the case that Agatha Christie is generally a much more interesting person than people give her credit for. So she's born in Torquay, yep. in Devon. In, in is 1890. That where, is that where Faulty Towers is? It is where Faulty yeah. Towers is. <laughs> Just checking. Um, so her father was Frederick Miller. His father was American, so her grandfather. You know, oh, okay. The money, family money was made in oh, America. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but Frederick wasn't very good with money. Kind oh. of squandered the family fortune. Kept buying things. Money problems in these books. All, everywhere. All over the place. Everywhere. Secret repressed money problems. Yeah. And her mother, Clara Burma, obviously from a German family. And she had, she had a brother, Monty. Another kind of slight kind of uh, money spender. I saw some photographs of him where he sort of built his own little trolley being uh, yeah. uh, pulled around pulled. by dogs. And hobby horses. And um, I liked him. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. And then Madge, interestingly, the older sister. Agatha was the, was the young... Agatha was the youngest. Was she the youngest? She by no. quite some way. Yeah, she was the youngest she was, by 10 years. Yeah, actually. exactly. Yeah. By quite some way. You know, Madge go. married very well. Madge married a chap called James Watts, who we'll talk a lot about in, yes. uh, in Cheadle. And she moved up to Abney Hall in Cheadle, which we all go and visit. And uh, Agatha spent a lot of time going to and from Cheadle. As uh, a child? As a child and a teenager. Wow, okay. Now, in the First World War, she served as a nurse in, uh, in, uh, in Torquay. In Torquay. Uh, learned all about poisons. Oh, did she started now? Working in, started working in the dispensary. Yes, a lot of poisoning. Yeah. Lots of poisoning. She saw some bad things there as well, you know. This is like, this is oh, a, yeah. You know, it's not co- nothing cosy about that, right? No, really nasty. Also, she, um, I did see that she developed an aversion to doctors, which is relevant to she the story. She did. Saying they were very rude. They do things like they they demand a towel from the nurse yeah. and then just throw it on the floor yeah, and expect yeah, them yeah. to pick it up and, stuff yeah, yeah. Without saying, and then walk yeah. out without she saying thank you. She didn't trust doctors, did she? No, don't like doctors. Which is uh, no. spoiler. Or anybody bit, uh, called Shepherd. two two strikes two strikes anyway during the first world war she then she met a guy archibald christie so she was obviously called agatha miller at the time yes okay uh archibald christie who um as lucy worsley describes was a real hottie 
in her. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, that's another trope way. of these books: is don't trust the don't good-looking trust the good-looking soldier. Right? <laughs> uh, and as it turns out, she shouldn't have trusted the good-looking yeah, soldier. Yeah. Anyway, they got married. Uh, he served quite a lot in the First World War. They moved to London. Uh, they had a child, Rosalind, oh. uh, and then they moved to Sunningdale. While she's in Sunningdale, the marriage falls apart. Uh, we will talk about this more. Terrible time, couple of, terrible couple of years. So this um, book was written in 1925. Yes. came but, out in but, 1926. But, well, but it came the, out. The serial version came out at the end of 1925. Yeah. So it's, and then in 1926, that's when everything blows up. Everything there. blows up. Weird, uh, right? This pre, this book kind of prefigures some of the chaos of that. It really does. It really does. Right. She picks up the pieces. First of all, it, it, Lucy Wosie makes the case that she has quite a lot of therapy in London okay. after all this. But then she decides that she's going to go and take a trip. So she basically books herself on a train to Mesopotamia. She takes the Orton Express, which ah. obviously will be useful. <laughs> All right. useful Always working. Fodora. Always working. Um, and uh, <laughs> Wherever she, she is, right? The, the, so she's on the, the Orton Express. She goes, oh, yeah, murder on the Orton Express. That'd be yeah, good. Uh, and then she gets to Mesopotamia. She goes, oh, murder in Mesopotamia. She is, I think good, she is literally it? the ultimate exponent of write what you know, really. <laughs> I mean, she really she gets is. on a plane. Oh, death in the air. And while she's out there, she meets a chap called uh, Max Malloran. Max. Who's an archaeologist. We're suspicious of Max's. Quite a lot younger than her. Mm. Uh, we are suspicious of Max's. Because Although of this Rebecca. Max turns out to be an absolute delight. Yes. Uh, very, very lovely. He's 12, 13 years younger than her. Hey. They're very, very happy together. Uh-huh. They have a bit of a wobble during the Second World War when he's he's posted overseas. and uh, she's, she's, She goes into a bit of a depression again. She's obviously quite fragile yeah. mentally, um, I would say. Uh, and then he comes back and they, you know they're very happy together. Lovely. And obviously her... In Torquay, the right. high water mark. The, well, they by buy a place called Greenway, right uh, up the River Dart. Which is a very good track by the Fall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I've had the Fall now. Just waiting for the Gresham's reference. Um, so, yeah, so they buy a house called Greenway, which you can visit. Uh, it's National Trust property, and uh, very happy to get. He dies before her. She doesn't die until the seventies, seventies, early seventies, and then yeah. So she basically her life was kind of you know the twentieth century in lots of ways. Certainly. The, the 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 decline of Britain, <laughs> but yeah. by the time she dies, Britain is basically on its knees. I think yes, as they say, and, had, and has no money. Well, as this she had lots of money. What is good about this book is well, there's plenty of things that are good about this book, but that idea that she charts in the this book's in the twenties, but in the twenties and thirties, it's all about post-war World, World War One decline, and also this business of the mistrust of the of the establishment of people mm. like doctors and generals and. Uh, solicitors and yeah, that 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 sort of um, uh, professional middle class is not to be trusted. They've no. all got something to hide. They They've say all... about three times this book that everyone's got something to hide. And then in the fifties, obviously with the Miss Marple stuff, she's got the post World War Two thing down about keeping up appearances and yeah. uh, and the, the sort of what's going on in sort of um, some dormitory towns yeah. and, and villages. I mean, there's some there's some rubbish stuff as well. I mean, there's uh, uh, she refers to. Jews as being uh, you know, so there's that going on is there any book we've done between 1919 and 1940 that isn't anti-Semitic no I don't think there is it's horrible um, do you know who who um, gave her the plot idea for this you do know of the, for the book uh, I don't think I do know that no oh okay so one of the reasons why we got drawn to Cheadle and Abney Hall yeah. is that that's where her brother-in-law lives yes and he'd said I'm getting a bit bored with your plot she's four novels in yeah. I'm getting a bit bored with your plots they're getting a bit obvious uh, why don't you do something different? Like, you know, uh, what if 
in a Sherlock Holmes novel that Dr. Watson turned out to be the murderer. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, she went went away and took that on board. Sure, but that's then... That's very good. Yes, well, yes. That's So that the Cheadle connection is good. Yeah. Um, the book is dedicated to her sister. It Pun- is. Punky. Punky. But here's the kicker. When, when they did the premiere of The Mousetrap, the theatre, uh, Lord Mountbatten came along, mm. right, and afterwards wrote her a letter and said, I love the show. I hope you remember that uh, back in the day... I wrote you a letter suggesting a plot line for a book, uh, and which subsequently became Roger Ackroyd, and you took it on board. And I just want to, you know, let you rem- wow. remind you that I helped you with the storyline. Wow. And she replied and said, oh, yes, I do remember you writing that letter. Yes, thank you very much. Wow. So Lord Mountbatten claims to have come up with this story idea. Okay. I don't believe any of them. <laughs> Bunch well, of look, men claiming well, they came up with the story. Well, look what happened to him, eh? Yeah, well, hey, okay. Hey. So that went a bit dark. <laughs> I saw the chance to escape into the garden. I am rather fond of gardening. I was busily exterminating dandelion roots when a shout of warning sounded from close by and a heavy body whizzed by my ears and fell at my feet with a repellent squelch. It was a vegetable marrow. I looked up angrily. Over the wall, to my left, there appeared a face, an egg-shaped head partially covered with suspiciously black hair, two immense moustaches and a pair of watchful eyes. It was our mysterious neighbour, Mr Porrett. He broke at once into fluent apologies. I demand of you a thousand pardons, monsieur. I am without a defence. For some months now I cultivate the marrows. This morning suddenly I enrage myself with these marrows. I send them to promenade themselves. Alas, not only mentally but physically... I seize the biggest. I hurl him over the wall. Monsieur, I am ashamed. I prostrate myself. Your best accent yet. The first sighting of Monsieur Poirot's accent on this podcast. Awesome. Very good. I'm impressed. As you said that, and they called him Mr. Porritt. Yeah. Um, did you know that, uh, you know, we were talking about other halls around here. Yes. Over, over dinner last night. There was night. a Porritt family, wasn't there? Well, Bruntwood Hall, which was right where our yeah. hotel was was owned by the Porritt family until 1945. We should explain that the, uh, the villagers of, uh, of King's Abbot have been um, interested that a, a, an elderly French man has moved into a house and they, they think he's called Mr Porritt. Obviously, he's actually called Hercule Poirot. Yeah. But this guy, John Porritt, he died in 1924. Well, OK. Interesting. We are very excited by this find so good so uh, so good the uh, narrator of this story Dr Shepherd yeah the evil shepherd yeah I mean we should probably say something about plot spoilers well, right at the start of this. Well, you we? can't do detective novels without a bit of that. No, you? so you should expect plot solid. So anyway, I'm afraid we're going. Well, all you need to know right now is Doctor Shepherd is a bit of a wrong one. He's a wrong one. He's a wrong one. He does a bad thing to someone who's a who's a right. Yes, who's a wheel right. <laughs> um, Just saying. I found this place on. We're, we're trying to find out where he lived because he lives next door to Hercule Poirot. Yes, Hercule Poirot has moved in next door, and Hercule Poirot is growing the vegetable marrows. Very British activity. I have more to say about marrows. Yeah, I know you do. I know you do. You've got a lot to say about oh, marrows. Oh, Mrs. Tim's gone deep into marrows. <laughs> oh. But before we get onto that, let's deal with the really good stuff, which is that we think we have found not only Dr. Shepherd's house, yeah. but Hercule Poirot's house. That's amazing, right? The Brooklyn Crescent in the Cheetle Village. 
So we're looking, we're sitting in a little park and surrounded by very well-to-do houses, three or four minutes behind the high street in Cheadle, this little park, and then surrounding it are a whole series of very large, double-fronted, semi-detached 19th century homes. With gardens at the back? And one of the, one of the homes is called The Ferns. And that is called, that is on the map from the the OS map from 1920. There's a, that house is called the, the Ferns. Ferns. It's got Fernley two Park, the Ferns, Fernley Park, um, the Ferns. Uh, so he walks here. Uh, it, it is, um, I, th- I would say, it's and almost exactly a ten. The house walk. in the book is called the Larches. The house is called the Larches in the book, and it's there called are two the Ferns quite large, larch-like trees in front, in front of this. We don't house think here. they are larches. I think they're cedars. But Agatha could have come here and gone. They look like larches. I'm going to call it we the larches. Might, a doctor might have lived there. So can, do we, can we imagine Agatha sat on this bench going... With a notebook. With a notebook going... Having done the walk and gone yeah. 10 minutes from the lodge, she needs 15 to be, minutes from the house. She needs to be about 10 or 15 minutes from the house, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's perfect. It kind of is. It's absolutely perfect. The road's called Brooklyn Crescent. Yes. Um, it's quiet, but you have to be quite well-to-do to be it's here. It's very quiet. It's, it's very good for recording podcasts. <laughs> so... Well done, property developers. It's it's a little little slice of the nineteenth century. Behind in, us, uh, there's a house Cheshire. here with um with a vegetable garden with raised beds. Yeah, you were very excited because you thought they were growing spot marrows. A marrow. Yeah, you thought they were growing <laughs> marrows in there. You did find uh, so you know Dr. Shepherd is a, is a slightly ropey well, it's professional interesting man because we came to the same location we by did. different routes. We did. I came via the OS map, from the logical historical route. <laughs> Yes, I came through the gossipy. Fine, <laughs> I came through the gossipy. Yeah, where do the seemingly respectable but slightly dodgy people yeah. live in this town with money problems? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I found on uh, BBC News site, BBC News, uh, two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, a solicitor from Greater Manchester has been charged with stealing more than six hundred and twenty thousand pounds from his clients. Wow. Police said Andrew John Taylor is accused of 14 counts of fraud by abuse of position of trust. It follows police raids on his practice, Andrew J. Taylor's listers on Wilmsborough Road, and his home on Brooklyn Crescent, Cheadle. So we've now got a solicitor, not a doctor, but who's with money issues. So it, it works for Marrows. Works for Marys. It works for dodgy professional men. Yes. It works for distance from um, Abney Hall, Fernley Park, Abney Hall. Yeah. And, um, it, wor- and it works because it's called the Larches. It works. It's, well, it's, it's called, called the, the Ferns. ferns. Or the Larches. The, lar- the Larches. The Larches. The Ferns. Uh, I'm calling it this. Works. I, if you live anywhere near Brooklyn Crescent and you haven't read Roger Ackroyd, you need to read Roger Ackroyd and you need to say to yourself, "I'm a neighbour of Hercule Poirot." Nice. Isn't that exciting? Very good. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to listen to the second part of this Agatha Christie special, now, today, right right this minute, Why wait? and without any ads, mm. uh, you can do that by joining our Patreon club. Just go to patreon.com and search for Curiously Specific. And for just £2, uh, you will get access to the part two immediately and all part twos immediately from there on in if you keep paying um, but also you'll find there that we do things like take lots of photos from our field trips so there's plenty of photos of Cheadle and the various locations to try and back up our theory there's going to be a map drawn by Lloyd 
no comment. And um, there may even be some little bits of video, I think. I think I took a video of walking to Hercule Poirot's house. You were standing outside Hercule Poirot's house looking at somewhere where people could grow marrows, from memory. That's right, and I didn't get arrested. And you didn't get your marrow out of the Golden Gate. <laughs> uh, that's there now. It's on the server right now uh, for £2 a month. If you pay us £5 a month, you can join our uh, Discord server uh, where we are a bunch of like-minded folk talk about books, books yes. we might do things we didn't know about the books we have done uh, just general chit chat about podcasting and uh, things it's all very nice nice there's vibe generally going there's on a there. very good uh, discussion going on about chase movies and uh, sort of a running yeah. man or running woman uh, yeah. uh, books it would be nice if we could get some women on there <laughs> it's it all bit, quite it's it quite blokey, blokey in the nicest possible way yeah. uh, but if you're you know if you're cut if you're the, a woman who likes the company of uh, literate men cut this bit <laughs> <laughs> cut this bit don't put everyone we're holding, off we're holding a special don't offer don't put the, no <laughs> Friday is ladies really night really stop it now back to the podcast Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 ready to get 20 20 ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. He was leaning on his garden gate the other day. He beckoned to a lady who lived just across the way. He took her down the garden path and showed her it with pride. When she saw the size of it, that little lady cried. Oh, what a beauty. I've never seen one as big as that before. Oh, what a beauty. It must be two foot long or even more. <laughs> Such a lovely colour. So nice and round and fat. I never thought a marrow could grow as big as that. <laughs> oh, what a beauty. I've never seen one as big as that before. Why did your accent become increasingly northern as that went on? Uh, well, I'll tell you why. Because it's featured in the movie Kez. We've done Kessel for a Knave as a podcast. Oh, is that the thing they're singing in the... In, in the, the Working uh, Man's Club. In the Working Man's Club. Yeah, they all join in. 
We're talking about marrows because this is quite peculiar, isn't it? That Hercule Poirot yeah. in this book, so his retirement age, growing marrows, growing English marrows. Vegetable marrows, he calls them, doesn't he? Yes. Well, they, they're known before that as English marrows. Yeah. Did you know that? Because no one else grows them. New, no, no, literally no one did. If you go and look on Wikipedia about this, it's very funny. I hadn't realised this. It claims, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, that vegetable marrows have been known about since 1822, but the zucchini, the word zucchini, doesn't enter the English language till 1929. So after this, so zucchini is a courgette, right? And the courgette doesn't feature in the in Oxford English Dictionary until 1931. They they're all baby marrows, basically. Okay. So the problem, what the Continentals did. Was that the they, didn't, they didn't grow them big enough? <laughs> this is the post-Brexit era. <laughs> they, the Continentals. They didn't grow them big enough. They they, they, they used picked... to eat them while they used to eat their young, the young marrow. What, while they were nice. <laughs> right. None of them liked it. No, the only people who liked it were the British. So this this is but so this Poirot thing about is John... a Belgian growing marrows in England. Why is he doing that? Yeah. Right. Well, I have a theory. I have several theories. Good. Uh, well, the first theory is I think he's trying to be English. I think as a, as a Belgian refugee, yeah. he's trying to fit in. Yeah. And where did he pick up this idea that marrow growing was such a big thing? During the war. Mm. Because I found an article in an academic journal, the Historical Journal, called British Expeditionary Force Vegetable Shows, Allotment Culture and Life Behind the Lines During the Great War. Wow. By Alex Mayhew of the London School of Economics. And it basically talks about how the soldiers were encouraged in order to keep their, you know, keep, keep, stay positive, is organise vegetable growing events. And they, they had allotments behind the lines that they'd go and grow their veggies there. Now, obviously, the Belgians must have been, and the French must have been watching this with thinking, what the what hell? What are you doing? What are you, why aren't you eating them while they're small? Why are you, what are you doing with these? <laughs> these it's an odd thing, isn't it? Because presumably they were, they, were, they were in some danger as well, right? These yeah. marrows. So you want to get them down your, into your belly sooner rather than later. Yeah, but then a lot of soldiers came back from the war having addicted to giant vegetable growing. <laughs> so Poirot sees this and thinks, oh, if I want to be a bit more English. They're all mad, but if I want to fit in, I'm going to have to grow marrows. <laughs> right, OK, very good. That's one theory. Now, the other thing I was very interested in is I wondered whether Agatha Christie knows her Dickens rather well. Charles Dickens. I'm sure she does. Because I found some images from uh, illustrations from early Dickens novels of a man throwing marrows over the garden wall, just as Hercule Poirot does when he's trying to get the attention of Dr. Shepherd. An illustration from a Dickens novel? Yeah, from Nicholas Nickleby. Nicholas Nickleby. Uh, uh, and what it is is this man, this eccentric neighbour, tries to woo Mrs. Nickleby by throwing his vegetables at her. And then dancing on the on the fence. Well, that seems and there's a, fa a fantastic picture. That of it. seems a fairly explicit reference. A though, large it? cucumber fell at Mrs. Nickleby's feet. Then a fine vegetable marrow. Kate caught her mother's hand and saw appearing above the garden wall a very large head in which were a most extraordinary pair of eyes, most ugly to behold. So it talks about a big old head, doesn't it? So it's a Dickens reference, and she's got Poirot trying to be English. Yes, That's very neat. But very neat. She really knows what she's doing, doesn't she? Well, apart from. Oh, okay. Apart from this business about Hercule Poirot's age. <laughs> yeah, so uh, she's got him retired. There's another question. Why the hell is he in Cheadle? 
Yeah, why is he in Cheadle? <laughs> Not in the south. Well, he's obviously he's he's pining for um, Hastings. 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 Hastings has gone to the Argentina. He's run off with a girl called Cinderella. He has to live in Argentina. <laughs> That's very funny. That uh, I found a I found a, a a very good site called Poirot.us, Hercule Poirot Central. Wow. Poirot's age. Now, the common theory is that he was born around 1854, which would make him 62, roughly, when Arthur Hastings saw him at Styles. So that by the time we get to... Uh, 1926. He's, he's, he's pushing... Seven, he's be 72 wow. in 1926. That's okay. the theory, right? Yeah. So, and then he keeps talking about retiring. And then uh, and in the 12 Labours in 1939, uh, 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 actually it was written in 39, published in 47, he'd be 93. <laughs> <laughs> and that by the time we get to Curtin, the final posthume novel, he'd be 121. <laughs> there's, there's, so, nice, there's rather a nice story that Lucy Wilson tells about Miss Marple right. and how she's an older woman until, she reaches, until Agatha Christie reaches her age and she in real life. And then the two of them stay the same in all the books uh, going forward. Whereas with this one, she obviously doesn't care. She, he, he's she's, never, gone, she's gone late. She's well, gone late, old too soon. Well, Poirot's never a young man. He's always an old guy, and then he just gets older and older. This I really like this theory from the Agatha Christie Companion, which says there's an age formula for Poirot's age. <laughs> this is good. So she said Christie employed a three to two ratio in her books, meaning that Poirot ages about two years for every three calendar years. So I calculate then that if Poirot was 62 in 1916, so it has to start from the affair in styles. So yeah. you have to say 62 yeah. when that happens, when he comes across the English Channel. So um, that by the time of Curtin, if it's two-thirds, he's 101. So that makes more sense. So uh, they, they so Curtin was actually published and the, in... I mean, Curtin was the book that she put in a safe. She wrote it in yeah, the 40s yeah. and put it in a safe and said... I only want this to be published after I die because it's a, basically a nest egg for yeah. my husband and daughter. Yeah, uh, but she actually published it in the sixties, I think, didn't she? Oh no, posthumously came out posthumously. Her daughter unlocked the cabinet after she died oh, okay. in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Thought, yeah. Okay. Right. So, so she's very meticulous person. She's curiously specific about many things, but not about Poirot's age. Well, I think that's obviously a case of she didn't have any idea that he was going to be such a popular character and she needed f desperately looking for a way to keep him alive I suppose so. yes well her publishers kept saying can you do another Poirot oh, oh, right. oh right not that but no more marrows no more marrows the marrows people are finding the marrows unsettling King's Abbot is a mere village, but its station happens to be an important junction. Most of the big expresses stop there, and trains are shunted, resorted and made up. It has two or three public telephone boxes. At that time of night, three local trains come in close upon each other to catch the connection with the express for the north, which comes in at 10.19 and leaves at 10.23. The whole place is in a bustle, and the chances of one particular person being noticed telephoning or getting into the express are very small indeed. We're on the platform. We are sitting. We I know just, it doesn't I've, sound like it. I've just done something I've never done before, which is I've eaten a carvery on a train platform. We're constantly delivering new experiences to the listener. So you may have picked up the background noise. It doesn't sound very trainy. No, it, it doesn't. It sounds I a bit more pubby. 
sounds a bit like a pub getting to the end it's of good, closing it? time. Because it's um, it's more it's it's more my kind of place than your kind yeah. of place. Well, no, we're, we're it's both good happy you here. thought that you were going to come to a train station no, and we ended up at a pub. We're both happy here. It's the perfect place for us. <laughs> yeah, it's a good compromise, <laughs> isn't it? I can see the train track out the window. Yeah, so we're actually sitting in uh, what was the railway station building at Cheadle Station. Which Cheadle Station? Well, well, we'll come on to that. Okay. So Cheadle Station closed in 1964, beaching cuffs. The line is still open, and they are talking about reopening the line. The line is still there, rather. It's not open at the moment. They're talking about reopening it. It's been converted into a pub. The Cheshire Line. Cheshire Line's Tavern. Tavern. So this is the Cheshire Line. It was run by the Cheshire Line Company, the railway. Excellent. And we've just had their Sunday carvery. And, um, yeah, so we're basically sitting on... They've extended the station. I can see the, what was the external wall of the station is now the back of the bar. Yeah. So we're sitting on what would have been the platform. We are, basically. Yeah. So The down platform. So I would have been getting the train to Liverpool from here. Yes. So As Poirot does. He does. In uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. He goes to... Yeah, and the, the, uh, the fateful phone call... Happens from the station. At 10.15, happens from the railway station. Now, we are obviously contending in this podcast that King's Abbot Abbot equals Cheadle. The station would be Cheadle Station, which is a mile out of town. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some difficulties, though. Can't really get an express to the north from here. As oh, she so says. You've, you've looked at your Bradshaws. I've you? got my Bradshaws out. You can get trains from here to Stockport and then to Manchester. Yeah. Uh, in one direction, and then to Liverpool in the other direction because it runs east or to worse. west. That's good. You could also get the train, ultimately to King's, King's Cross or St Pancras because this this train line went into Yorkshire. There's an enormous number of train lines around here. When you look on a map of the yeah, 1920s, yeah, yeah. There's, it's surrounded well, the by reason, rail tracks. The reason I down. opened this train line was to get coal from the Yorkshire coal fields directly to Liverpool without having to go through Manchester. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, that, was why it was, that was why it was a commercial venture. Now, there's, there's, there's some problems, though, because, first of all, she describes all those trains coming in around half past ten. The latest train I can see in Bradshaws in either direction is around half past nine. That's a passenger train. Passenger train. But she's talking about people changing trains for the express to the north. Oh, yes, true. There isn't really an express to the north unless you're talking about the Manchester train. Yeah. Which wouldn't really be an express because you'd be changing a stop port. So there's a couple of things wrong with it. Anyway, you're constantly trying to make excuses for her because you're such a fanboy that you're not, you don't, you're even letting her off train times. That's how much you like her. Yeah, I know. That's a real sign. But look, you know. She's given us a location which is both a pub and a train station house. I'm happy with so that. She's done, she's done us a big favour there. So, uh, this book was published in 1926. Well, well, published in book form in, book in 1926. It was in the uh, London Evening News, serialised in 1925. Yeah, but we only care about books. Do we? Yes. Oh. <laughs> well, for purposes of contextualising the book's date, we're saying 1926. Yeah, and it obviously it made a massive splash as a book. It yeah. was a real big bestseller and put yeah. it on the map. Well, yeah. not, not actually that huge, actually. It was like the, the book before sold... 5,000 copies, yes. and this book sold 7,000. Oh, okay. So it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, she was on the up, but it's actually more in hindsight that people go, this is a sort of defining moment for her, because it was such a, okay. such an interesting book. So oh, okay. It did all right. It did, it did pretty well. 
1926. I mean, the big thing about 1926, which she obviously wouldn't have known about when she was writing the book, was the general strike. Uh, Yes, but we've had this before. When we did Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, um, um, Rebecca de Winter doesn't know about the general strike. She no. she blithely goes off to London to see a doctor, yeah. and not uh, as if that's going to be easy. Yeah. That she's going to catch a train during yeah. the general strike. I don't think so. Yeah, but the same year, the Council for the Preservation of Rural England was founded. <laughs> ah, which are kind of like hmm, some of Agatha Christie's characters would have approved of that. I think I wrote down some stuff about dangerous books. Oh, in 1926. Well, this is a dangerous book. This is a very dangerous book. Uh, now, the Irish were very worried about dangerous books in 1926 because the Irish Free State formed something called the Committee on Evil Literature. Yes. Which was to look at whether we should be censoring things. Encouraged by the Roman Catholic Church. Encouraged by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Winnie the Pooh was published. That's a dangerous book. Well, Winnie the Pooh interests me very much because just, as it, um, they've, um, just after they finished the serialisation in 1925 of yeah. Roger Ackroyd, the next thing they publish is the first chapter of <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Okay, well, yeah. So it segues from Roger Ackroyd to yeah. Winnie the Pooh straight away. Interesting. In other, in other bear-related news, Michael Bond was born in 1926. Ah, the Creature curse of Paddington of, Bear. The curse of Paddington. And my, I think my, possibly my favourite birth, while we're talking about evil literature, yeah. René Goscinny. Was born oh, in 1926. So Asterix. of Asterix. Very, and Lucky Luke. And Lucky Luke. Lucky Luke. Indeed. Yeah. Births in general that year. Births were amazing. Absolutely phenomenal. What a year. We were saying what a year. the world that we grew up in as children was kind of populated by people who were born in 1926. Obviously, notably, Queen Elizabeth. Yes. Uh, David Attenborough. David Attenborough. Eric Morecambe. Lionel Jeffries. Yes, P-O-S-H, posh with a capital P. Uh, music related, we had Chuck Berry and George Martin, born in the same year. Amazing, right? Yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and Michel Foucault, obviously. And very important. Very importantly. Very important. Yeah. I felt that this was, that this was 1926 is sort of uh, Mike Yarwood's golden year. <laughs> What his two impressions? He wouldn't have had a career if 1926 had not happened. Harold Wilson, no Dennis Healy. <laughs> no, no. Listen to this: Kenneth Williams, oh yeah, Ian Paisley, David Coleman. He used to do David Coleman, Did he do David didn't he? David Coleman, David Coleman, Pat Coombs, <laughs> Leonard Rossiter, very imp- uh, Jimmy Savile. Now then, now then, Frank Carson, blimey, Frank Carson. What, what was his catchphrase? Frank Carson. It's the way I tell him. That's the way I tell him. <laughs> Uh, uh, I mean, unbelievable the amount of impressions you could get away with. And then, obviously, American comedy. You've got Mel Brooks, Jerry Lewis, and Leslie Nielsen, all born in that day. Leslie Nielsen's not American, though. Oh, he's not, is he? He's Canadian. Okay, but he may. You know what I mean. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, you've got Neil Cassidy, Frank O'Hara, and Allen Ginsberg, yes. and Harper Lee. Yes. All being born. I there. know. So then, the whole beat generation. It's weird, isn't it? You don't think of Harper Lee and Neil Cassidy as being. Sort of the same age. Yeah, same age. <laughs> but I'm thinking Neil Cassidy, Frank, Frank O'Hara, Frank Carson, out on a, out and on the, Leonard Rossiter, out on, the lash. out on a beach buggy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see it. What thoughts I have of you tonight, Walt Whitman, for I walked down the side streets under the trees with a headache, self-conscious, looking at the full moon. In my hungry fatigue... And shopping for images, I went into the neon fruit supermarket, dreaming of your enumeration. <laughs> it's the way I tell them, isn't it? 
the big story we haven't mentioned in 1926, and it was a huge story, absolutely huge, the front page of all the newspapers for days and days and days, was the disappearance of Agatha Christie. Now, we've already mentioned that uh, Agatha's husband, Archie, had turned into a bit of a wrong The Wrong-un. golf, the golfer. Go- the golfer. <laughs> um, and uh, he'd actually fallen in love with someone called Nancy Neal, a yes. golf lover described as an open, frank, athletic girl. Lucy Wesley, I don't know why you're disagreeing with this. Is, this, is, this looking, is, very, looking very golfy. This is the Matt Hancock excuse. I fell in love. I fell in love. We're in sort of very early December, 1926, near the end of the year. The book's been out for a while, Roger Ackroyd. The events where I'm about to describe happen a few months after the events in the book. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they'd moved to Sunningdale early in 1926, actually. Not been really? long. Oh, okay. Not been there very long. And, uh, Quite a big Archie, house, right? So it's a, a bit of a scale. House, yeah, a yeah. massive house, which they'd renamed the Styles, as in Murat Styles. Um, and uh, Archie had been stopped to see this, this, this younger woman called Nancy Neal. And on the 3rd of December, uh, he was with her, with some friends at <laughs> a cottage, that's right. So... Uh, Styles is in Sunningdale, which is in Berkshire, and he was actually. Is in, it in Berkshire? He, well, he was he was at a cottage in Surrey, which will become important, <laughs> county lines and all that. Um, so Agatha, uh, in the evening of the third of October, um, drives towards where Archie and Nancy Neal are staying. She drives towards them. Yeah, and somewhere on the way, she essentially nearly drives her car over a cliff, literally drives into a chalk cliff. And it's hanging over the edge, Italian job style. Right. Um, she she bangs her head. She's a bit injured. Yeah. Uh, she gets out of the car, and basically disappears. Right. Disappears into the Good night, story. leaving yeah. her fur coat. So you can see why the papers would love this. Yeah, they love it. They love it. She just disappears. Anyway, what seems to have happened is she then takes seems to have taken the train all the way to Harrogate, in the north of England, and checked into the Harrogate Hydropathic Hotel, which I think is now the Swan. Um, the Swan Hotel the George. I've been there anyway have you yeah um, why would you go to Harrogate I, I, I did a literary event there did you I did went to the uh, um, I can't remember if it was a historical fiction event they've got a big kind of historical fiction thing out okay. there back in the day when people cared about my books um, oh. I know sorry that was a, oh. side, that was, that was a mournful oh. sidebar yeah come anyway, on now. So, cheer uh, up mate she checks <laughs> I'm joking she, no, I don't care she checked into the Harrogate Hydrographic Hotel under the name of yeah. Mrs. Neal oh right. nice Nancy Neal's name okay uh, and obviously the whole country erupted basically the, 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 the papers went mad there was a huge police hunt for her but the weird thing about the police hunt was because she lived in Berkshire Oh. Is that right? I've got this right. She lived in Berkshire, but she crashed the car in Surrey. Yes. Um, there were two police forces involved, and it seems that the Berkshire police force decided to kind of uh, try and find her yeah. because they thought she's obviously just wandered off somewhere, whereas the Surrey police force thought she's 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 dead. She's died somewhere. We need to find the body. It's a huge, huge hunt of people walking through. I think I've seen pictures walking of through the, yeah, yeah. Walking through well, kind of fields. Well, a movie as well. About there is a terrible movie is that kind Vanessa of implies Redgrave? she set the whole thing up, and it's called Agatha. Yeah, in the seventies, I think it came out. Yeah. Um, interesting. Dorothy L. Sayers uh, was one Ooh, of the people another. who was hunting for her in Ooh, Surrey. We're, we're going to be doing one of her books. Arthur Conan Doyle obviously contacted a because by this time he was full spiritualism. Contacted a medium, of course he did, to see if they did. could find her. Good on him. But all this time, for like more than a week, she's just hanging out in Harrogate as Mrs. Neal. 
and then eventually they on track, a diet of marrows. I would they assume track, they track it down. Well, one of the waiters, waiters or waitress, finally, finally, because I've pictures in all the papers, right? Yeah. Finally, somebody from the Harrogate Hotel staff contacts Archie and says she's up here. She's in the hotel. He goes up there with a, a police detective, uh, followed by tons of journalists, and they're literally waiting for her at the bottom of the lift to come down in, in the lift. Don't know why they did that. I don't know why they just go up to my room. And she opens the lift door open. She goes, Oh, hello, Archie. Should we have dinner? Oh, wow. <laughs> and they go and have dinner. Um, and uh, they come back. They come back. They, they go to Abney Hall. That's kind of where they take refuge in Cheadle. They don't go back to, uh, to uh, Sunningdale. Okay. Um, now, of course, the endless debate has been why did this happen? What happened to her that night that she should do this? Yeah. Um, a lot of people have said it was all a publicity stunt. You know, for what publicity, stage, though? Well, she's got a new book out, Roger Ackroyd. Oh, okay. Um, that it was Which has a missing person in it. It has Ralph Payton exactly. disappearing exactly. Exactly. In, a, in a sanatorium. So, so quite a lot of uh, male journalists and writers said, because uh, you know, the story in the papers in the weeks after was, you know, uh, uh, is Mrs. Christie going to compensate the police for the search and you know, all this kind of stuff? <sighs> you can imagine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of pompous tone that they yes, adopted. Yes, um, But uh, Lucy Worsley is, is, is very convincing about this and basically thinks that you know she had a you know uh, a mental episode she calls it a fugue yeah which apparently is a thing yeah where she basically just forgot who she was and mm. sort of you know adopted an alternative personality for a week because everything that had gone in her life was too painful to her to, for her to face right um, and she also finds quite a lot of evidence quite compelling evidence that after it all happened and after she divorced from archie she actually moved to london to a flat near harley street and you know the 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 the, the um, suspicion is that she was seeing a therapist in Harley Street to kind of deal with all this kind of stuff that she had you know quite serious mental health problems. Okay. Um, so Lucy Worsley makes that case quite well, I think. Um, I must admit, I've got no clue. I find it very no. perplexing that somebody would go to Harrogate from Surrey. Yeah. Uh, without you know, she had sixty pounds on her. So that's the other thing people say: Why did she have sixty pounds on her? It's quite a lot of money in those days. Yeah. But- she was quite wealthy, and yeah, there's quite a lot of loose cash to be carrying around, isn't it? Sixty quid. Yeah. And so she was like, you know, she's she, she was planning, yeah. like, but she left her fur coat. Weird. Mm. It's all very, very weird. Uh, I, I guess we'll never know exactly I, what's going on. My, I'm, I have a the the car crash smells to me like a suicide attempt. I think I think it. I I, I think that's right. I think I would agree. And you know, if she had a suicide attempt that involved her. Banging her head quite badly. Yeah, you know, you have that kind of thing, don't you? Yeah, but also people then, when you, if people... you haven't managed to do it, and then you're in a field, yeah, and you think, now what am I going to do? Yeah. Well, also, if you've hadn't managed to do it, you banged your head. You're a little bit discombobulated. Yeah. You kind of, you know, it's, I suppose it's a bit like being drunk, right? Yeah. You make really odd decisions. And then the Harrogate thing is like, if you then got to a train station and you just take the first train that comes along, don't you? Yeah, but that wouldn't have been to Harrogate, would it? She would have had to go through London. Yeah, but she would have London, and then she gets out of the station, and they go, where's the next train going? No, she would have had to go across London. You can't get a train. Oh, here from... we go. Well, no, you can't. Here you... we go. So in a fugue state... In a fugue state, she I, went I into can, Waterloo. I contend that in a fugue state, even you wouldn't be, be <laughs> wouldn't know your bloody timetables anymore. No, so, but it's an odd thing to do, right? So if you, if, if, it if is she's an in, odd thing If to she's do. in Waterloo, if she's in... Uh, Surrey, she's getting the train and it would have gone to Waterloo, oh, south of the river. Go. I'd not thought about this before. <laughs> I'm doing this, this is live scatting going uh, on. Yeah. She would have had to get from Waterloo <laughs> to King's Cross, which would mean taking the Northern Line. Mm. Now, would you get on the Northern Line in a fugue state? Oh. 
Do you know what? I've now got a picture of you living in a little house with Agatha Christie in the 1950s, chatting, <laughs> chatting, saying, I've often wondered, Agatha, how you got to Harrogate. Yeah. And, uh, and her loving it. You yeah. chatting away about your timetables, you two together. <laughs> It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Fantastic. Very cute. I will say a little bit about train timetables later on. Oh, please do. Only a little bit. But that, so that's, that's the big news in 1926. Well, she, but the thing is, she, she conceived this story in 1925. She did. So uh, this is a, a throwing forward. It is. Uh, that real life starts to echo the fiction in it's, her mind. It's all very odd, isn't it? It's all well, very there odd. aren't that many books that we've done where people, where authors are projecting forward. It's kind of it's a form of speculative fiction. It is, is it not? It is. Most people uh, write their books about the year they're writing it, yeah. or one a bit previous. Yeah. Not many people say, "Oh, this book's set next year." I think we're making a good case here for Cheadle. Oh, an excellent case for Cheadle. I mean, I think it works far better than either of us expected, actually, uh, having been up there. I was quite surprised. Now we've now we've set out the geography of Cheadle, or uh, King's Abbot for you. Mm. Um, got the name right this time. Well done. We obviously want to go and investigate... The hall. Fernley Park itself. That's um, right, which is the site of the murder. Which is the house of Roger Ackroyd. Yes. So we're going to be visiting a few places in part two. So, yes, we're going to investigate... The hall, um, but we also are looking for a sanatorium where Ralph Payton could be hidden. We are. That's coming as well. Mm. Uh, we've also got a uh, an interesting uh, sidebar uh, from a French academic ah, that uh, we've both been Monsieur reading, Bayard, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called "Who Really Killed Roger Ackroyd." I'm really hoping you're going to be reading some of that in your outrageous French I've accent. I've been using uh, the little Grisels to understand his argument. Yes, I am not convinced. <laughs> but at the same time as being quietly persuaded. Uh, Until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.